pushing buttons and pulling triggers. This is Gun Funny. Welcome to Gun Funny episode 216. Today I'm going to chat with Mikey Hartman from CAA USA, discuss a recent win in a 2A case in Hawaii, highlight a new hybrid grip module for the SIG P320, and talk about a man who built a very unusual house for his wife. I am your host, Ava Flanell. Mikey, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. So I'm really jealous. You're in Florida and it's like super nice there. And today high is 50 degrees here in Colorado. You know, Florida weather is awesome. You know, sometimes it's a bit hot, but yeah. I don't think there's many places that beat it. And we have a great governor too. So we're, we're two uh, for two. I know. Right. So <laughs> I was actually just telling my friend, I'm like, I really do need to figure out how I can have a winter house, like in Florida or Arizona, because I just, I hate the cold. It's, and it's not even like Colorado really has that much snow, like Colorado Springs, but it's just the cold that just, it just gets me. Plus I got like a 50 pound white pumpkin last week and I went to a pumpkin farm and oh, I'm kind of cool. concerned about my pumpkin outside. I don't know, like, I know they obviously grow outside, but I'm like, at what temperature do they start to like rot? <laughs> to make you feel better when you live in Florida, you actually want to buy a vacation home where, where there's snow. So my kids are, are 14 and 10, and they never saw snow in their lives because in Israel, we don't have snow. And in Florida, we don't have snow. So uh, we actually took them uh, pre-COVID to, to New York. And in the winter, just they could see snow in a little cabin there that we rented out for a week. So when you want to come here, know that there's people here that want to go where you are. Maybe we could do like a home swap. Sure, sure. I'm not, they do that stuff. Sure. <laughs> A good idea. And I understand you're re- renovating and we're renovating. So we'll, you know, at least get there when, uh, when the houses are good. Cause right now yeah, it's exactly. a nightmare. It'll be like yeah. a brand new house basically. And <laughs> yeah, I think you'll really enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's a day. All right. So before we get on with the show, Smith and Wesson. If you're a fan of Revolver, Smith & Wesson just released a new version of the Model 19 from the Performance Center. The Model 19 is a K-frame revolver that holds six rounds of 357 Magnum. The new versions from the Performance Center are called the Model 19 Carry Comp. It's available in 2.5 or 3-inch barrels uh, with a porting design for the concealed carry. And obviously with the 357 in that short of a barrel, the porting is going to really help tame that recoil that energy on a shorter revolver is going to have. The action's tuned at the Performance Center for smooth double action and light, crisp single action. Definitely check that out. You can find it at smith-wesson.com. Learn the things you never knew on Deconstructing the Industry. Mike, I'm really excited to have you on the show. I actually last, I think it was last week, I talked about your new design coming out. And then I touched base with one of your employees there. And I was just like, hey, it would actually be really cool to get you on and to hear it from you. But before we get into all of that, I'm really interested to hear about like your background and, you know, everything that happened that led up to you uh, getting uh, started with CAA. So 
give me a little bit about your background. From my understanding, you're actually from the U.S., but when you turned 18, you actually moved to Israel, right, to join the Israeli Defense Forces? Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I don't know how interesting my story is, but uh, I was born actually in Memphis, moved to L.A., always had a, a, some sort of BB gun in my hands ever since I was little. I didn't know I would end up being the shooting champion of Israel, but I definitely uh, loved, uh, loved shooting, but I didn't know much about it. And I always, when I was in high school, you know, I'm Jewish, so I grew up in a Jewish home. I would always have this dream that I'm a, a sniper on the Warsaw ghetto during the Holocaust and shooting at Nazis and how many Nazis will I kill before they kill me kind of thing. Yeah. And it was like a re reoccurring dream. So the first word I learned in Hebrew was uh, Salaf, which means sniper. And my dream was to be a, a, a sniper in the Israeli army, which ended up, that's what ended up happening. And I didn't know I'd stay in for 22 years and become a lieutenant colonel, but I definitely, that was my, that was my dream. You know, uh, if I can help people get home safely to their families and, uh, you know, do something, leave, leave some sort of stamp on the world that I, I made it a little, little bit better by, by helping the soldiers. So in Israel, everyone's kind of much against us. We really don't have any friends other than the USA. Um, and now it's not as fun as it was when, when Trump was president, but, um, uh, we definitely need the USA guys and, and your backing, but we're surrounded by people that don't want us there. Mm -hmm. So you're always in a, a, a constant fighting situation. So it was definitely a, a very interesting 22 years in the IDF. Oh, I can only imagine. So I actually, I'm Jewish and I went to Israel and I noticed that there's soldiers everywhere. And at one point, the group that I was in, we actually had to move because there was bombing going on nearby. And it's crazy to think that this is just something that is almost like everyday life for Israelis. It's almost insane because yeah. people don't understand that this country called Israel, you almost impossible to find it on a map because it's so minute. It's geographically the size of New Jersey. You know, yeah. we're in Florida. We're can't, I don't even know how many times bigger than we are of all Israel. But from west to east, because it's like a rectangle, there's sometimes like 12, 15 minutes and you're at the border already. And so you're basically surrounded by people that don't want you there and you don't have space to, to deal with them. So you're fighting all the time. I remember when we lived in a place called Gadara, which is the southern part of Israel, it's kind of between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, but it's farther south. And all the houses that you probably know, they have bomb shelters inside. Mm -hmm. So every home that's built in Israel has to have a bomb shelter by default, by definition. And then when the guys, the terrorists, the Hamas guys send uh, bombs over from Gaza, there's a siren that goes off. And the farther you are from Gaza, the more seconds you have to get your kids into the bomb shelter. So it can vary from either 15 seconds up to around 45 seconds to a minute, depending on the distance you live from there. And then you have to get your kids. You know, we lived in a small two-story home. And you have to pull the kids out of the cribs and, and run down the stairs and, and, and close yourself up in this little bomb shelter in the house. And my daughter would say to me, you know, Daddy, why do they want to kill us? Why they? And she's like, you know, seven, eight back then. And, and she had such trauma from that, that during her adolescence, she, you know, she's 14 now, but she would not want to be upstairs if we were not upstairs in Israel. We had to be on the same floor because this leaves some like psychological damage. And, and, and you have to understand if you read a, a kindergarten book in the territories in, in Gaza, you're taught from age one as a Palestinian not to be a doctor or a lawyer. You're taught to be a martyr. You're taught to grow up and if possible, kill yourself with and take as many Jews as possible. That is 
your goal in life because then there's streets named after you and Iran pays your family money for the next two, three generations. And, you know, you're a hero. So that's how they're taught. If you see the way they're dressed up on their Halloweens, they're all, all the kids are in suicide bomber vests, every single one of them. So it's a, it's a crazy world to live in, but it's also beautiful there. And a crazy thing that people don't understand in the army and Israel army, you have to go in if you, it's a mandatory draft. So a guy at 18 goes in for three years, a girl at 18 goes in for two years, but on the weekends you go home. It's not like here in America, you guys go to Iraq, Afghanistan, and you come home every six months or whatever. There you come home every week or two. So you see your family on the weekends and then you go back to, to the army. That's the way it's because your base is normally a half hour or 40 minutes from your, your home because the, the country is so small. So it's a, it's a definitely different environment than here. But we are what we call great friends. I think the Israeli military and the American military, I, I don't think there's a better relationship anywhere between any two militaries in the world than, than that relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Israel definitely is like a beautiful country. It's just amazing. I actually, so I have a kind of a funny story, but when I was in Israel, I ended up getting sick. And they, what I didn't realize is the amount of people there that speak Russian and they don't speak yeah. English. And that's like the last thing I would have thought. I don't, like, I don't know why. I was really surprised to see how many people spoke Russian. And uh, so I had a translator basically telling them my symptoms, what medication I was currently taking. And then they prescribed me like, I don't know, they gave me like two different pills in the middle of the night. So earlier that day, we went to Mount Masada. And yeah. I don't know if maybe I was hallucinating or dreaming, but I was sleeping on a bunk bed. I fell off the bunk bed in the middle of the night. I ended up breaking my arm. Several oh my God. And I had a concussion. <laughs> Jesus. And it's funny because my mom, my sister and I, we both went to Israel. My mom was scared to let us go. And really, I mean, out of everything that could have happened, mine was self-inflicted. But we were in some little town and they didn't have the resources to put a cast on my arm. So we had to drive like two hours to a bigger city. And even there in the hospital, everyone spoke Russian. And even the cast that I did get on, it looked like just some foreign, it's weird because you would think they'd have kind of the same technology, but even the cast that was on my arm, it just looked like it was like some kid put it on. And then they almost wouldn't let me get back on the plane to go home because the cast was so new that when you, you know, obviously when you're in the air and everything yep. expands, so they didn't want my arm to expand. It was like a, a bit of a nightmare, but it was definitely something that I'll always remember. And to this day, I have like an indentation in my leg. So it looks like I have like a forever cankle and that's where they, you know, wherever I severed a nerve. And so there's parts of my foot that I can't feel. <laughs> oh my God. That's not a great story about Israel. I was waiting to hear a good story about Israel. That's insane. Yeah. By the way, I, you know, medicine in Israel is actually, I think one of their strengths, they get a whole bunch of Nobel prizes on, on medicine. But the doctors there are normally, normally, I guess there's some, there's some, uh, uh, some things that are different than that, but they're actually very good at that. And because it's like kind of public healthcare, uh, you're, it's not as crazy expensive, but there's doctors there that are like, that are great. Your story, if you're in Masada, that's very south. So as we said, we're a rectangle. So you are by the Dead Sea. That's where Masada is. Uh -huh. So that, that you would have to drive probably two hours to get to either Beersheva or Eilat so someone could uh, take care of you. But Russians have, uh, there's, there's major cities in Israel that are all Russian. You know, they live in, they live in groups. 
So, uh, and this is was because there was a lot of anti-Semitism in Russia in the old Soviet Union, and an, an immense amount of, of, of the percentage of the Russian Jews left Russia to, to Israel. And, an, and a funny story about what you and I do, 85% of all snipers and sharpshooters in the IDF are all Russian born or Russian uh, grandparents, but they're all Russians. Alex, Evgeny, Boris. You go to any sharpshooter and sniper in Israel, you ask him, is your name Evgeny, Alex, or Boris? 80% of the time, you'll be right. Wow. They have, because they, they were taught, you know, to shoot with an AK-47 in the high school. You know, They were taught from parents that were in the military. It's like, they want to be, I developed a, a job called a sharpshooter in the IDF in, in 1993. And it was like between a regular grunt guy and a sniper. We built like a, a second stage. I think you guys call it a designated marksman. We call it a sharpshooter. In any case, I can't even tell you. I, I had to try to, we had to bring in instructors that spoke Russian because so many of the, of the uh, guys that came to our sniper school were, were Russian based. It was insane. So interesting, different stories about Russians in Israel. Yeah, but that's, kind of, that's something that a lot of people don't realize. I mean, I never knew that. I don't know. I just, I found it kind of odd. I guess it was the last thing that I would have thought of is that there's just such a large Russian population. It, as well as, as well as Ethiopian. So, you know, uh, almost every Jew that lived in a lot of these places leaves because of the anti-Semitism and their only real home is Israel. Other than America, you know, it's not very easy to be Jewish anywhere. And now we have some people in our government that aren't very happy with Jews either. But, you know, the, the, the whole thing is, there's very few people that you can walk around. There's stories even in New York, though, that, that Jews are walking around and someone sucker punches them or stuff like that. So anti-Semitism is definitely on the rise. Yeah. But what the only real true place to be is in Israel with a gun or here in America with a gun. You gotta you need yeah. to be able to protect yourself. That's for damn oh, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's go back to when you started a training shooting school for soldiers. Yep. What got mm-hmm. you started into that? Well, when I joined the IDF, it was in 88. So I'm an, I'm an old man. And um, I was in what we call the Givati Brigade. Those are the Purple Berets. Those are in, in the South as well, by the way, uh, by the Egyptian border. And when my, my first grouping with the Galil, which was our, which was our you know, given weapon, that's what they would give to us. Mm-hmm. I had a very good grouping. I think it was like, if I remember correctly, maybe two centimeters, maybe a uh, little less than an inch. And back then in 88, because it was pre-Russian immigrants, because the Russians now have all the records in shooting, it was like extraordinary. So they brought a general to watch me shoot, which was something that, you know, because Jews, Jews are very not athletic, right? <laughs> we weren't very good at things that are not mine related. And uh, they sent me to sniper school after about maybe a month and a half in boot camp. And I came back to be a sniper in my, in my platoon in my company. And one of the times that we were in Lebanon doing an ambush, before the ambush, you do, um, how do I say it in English? You do like preparations for the ambush. So we all zero the guns, you get your gear and, you know, get your gear ready, make sure you got what you need to take out with you to the ambush. So after I zeroed in my, my sniper rifle was an M14. That's, that's what we had back in 1988. And, um, it was a semi-automatic, wasn't even, uh, you know, it's not a one shot. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I ended up zeroing my, my weapon. We didn't even have a night scope on it. So I had to take another gun with a night scope because we didn't have a, a night adapter to put on the M14. And uh, crazy how the world has changed in so many years. But after I finished zeroing the gun, my, my sniper rifle, my friends in my platoon were having trouble zeroing their, their Galil. So I went down the shooting line 
just giving them my thoughts or what I thought was logical of how to improve their shooting so they could do a better grouping so they could zero better. Mm-hmm. And my my platoon commander saw that, you know, I was a young kid. I must have been what, eight months in the army, nine months in the army, maybe 10. I knew nothing of nothing, basically, other than, you know, how to shoot. So um, then maybe four or five, six months later, my battalion commander, who's a lieutenant colonel, calls me and he says, they say you have a gift that you can make people shoot better. I said, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, but I don't know if I have a gift, but... And he said, do you think you can develop that in our unit for this one infantry unit called Givati, which is one of the five infantry units of Israel? Um, I said, you know, I can try. You know, I went to NCO school, became an NCO guy, became a sergeant, then became a first sergeant. And then I started writing. I would write scenarios like, uh, you know, shoot at 25 yards in a standing position, uh, 12 rounds in three seconds, whatever it is. You need to hit this kind of score. I would build like rows of lines of, how I think we should build soldiers. How do you take them from A to Z? Because in Israel, we don't, we don't have hunting. We don't have sports shooting. No one owns a gun in Israel. You only get it issued when you join the army. You don't own a gun at home. It, you can't go into a gun store in Israel and buy an AR or an AK. It doesn't exist. Almost very little people have handguns, very little. So the only people that have weapons are, are soldiers, right? So the first time a guy shoots a gun is in his boot camp. He's never shot a gun in his life. So um, I, in my life, have never gone hunting. I've had to shoot two-legged people. I've never shot a four-legged thing in my life. Mm-hmm. So um, I started building this, and we started developing it in my unit, in the Gibati Brigade. And then we won a whole bunch of shooting competitions. And then the other, the other infantry units spoke to the, the general of the armed forces and said that we, should, we need to move Mikey out of that unit and put him in charge of all of us. So in 93, after five, six years in Givati, they moved me to, uh, I, be, I went to officer school. I became a second lieutenant then, you know, at, until I got to a lieutenant colonel. And I started the school in 1993. And basically I tried, everyone in the Israeli army was doing something different. Like maybe the army and the Marines and the Navy do things differently here in America. In Israel, every infantry unit would shoot its own doctorate back then in 93. And it, it, went, it went down from sergeant to sergeant to sergeant to sergeant. It was like a, a, a walking Bible, you know, and it would just be passed down by generation to generation. So everyone had their own way of doing things. And there wasn't unity. There wasn't a doctrine of, of any way that everyone would do. We were like the best at improvising. You know, everyone would just shoot from their hip in Israel, literally. And um, so I started writing and then I would go to these units, these other units and say, hey, guys, try this. And fortunately for me, it, it worked. And then we started getting better and better and better and better. And I ended up writing over 10,000 uh, shooting uh, schedules for the artillery, for engineering, special forces, uh, Navy, whatever, whoever. And then um, I became very good at that. That was my, my gift. I would go to a sleep with a pen and paper next to me. And I'd come up with an idea of a shooting position or how to do an ambush or you know anything like that. And I would write it down. And the next day was law because I didn't have any bureaucratic red tape that they do here and um we're always in battle so we will always be learning from things that are happening and we could adapt our doctrine because of what's what we're learning so that was like a daily thing and normally in the army you do a job for two years and then you go on to another job in the israeli army as as an officer somewhere else and that's the way you continue your army service i wasn't talented enough to do anything else so i stayed basically in my same chair 
give or take, for 17 years. There was a brick that was in charge of ambushes in Lebanon for a year, but mostly, you know, that was my thing, you know, to develop, you know, machine guns and what sites and building, you know, I brought in an ACOG from uh, Trijicon and I built a different reticle and I built all the zeroing targets for Israel. And, you know, even the way we check a gun is different than the way Americans do it. So it was my thing. That's what I knew how to do. And I thought that's why God put me on this earth. I wasn't married. I was single my entire military. I met my wife when I was a lieutenant colonel already. So um, it was, uh, I always felt that, you know, if I can save one life with what I do, then that, that would be awesome. And, and I even had the opportunity to train thousands of American military. They would come to our base before they go to Iraq or Afghanistan in this like program called Lessons Learned. And we would train them uh, because we were better than you guys originally on CQB because you guys had most of your knowledge from Vietnam, which was more of an open terrain or jungle warfare, but not street to street, house to house. So when, before you guys went into Iraq, we had that. That was our knowledge of, you know, how do you clean a street? How do you clean a room? How many people need to go in? Where are the guns aimed? Uh, what kind of equipment do you have to have on? So this is stuff that we knew very well, unfortunately, because of how we have to fight. And that knowledge was given over to the U.S. military. And when you guys do something, you guys do it better than we do anyway. And uh, so we would do a lot of lessons learned back and forth and learning from each other. So I trained probably probably three to 4,000 American military guys. Wow, that's incredible. I'm going to take a quick break, but I do have a question when we get back. I was checking out Primary Arms website last night, browsing their new arrivals, and just saw that they got in a bunch of new bags and stuff that are made uh, by Primary Arms. They've actually owned their own bags for a while now, but they've got several different like sling bags, tactical backpacks, different sizes, colors, and they're really competitively priced, $34.99 to $54.99. One of the things that I really liked, which it's kind of simple, but they have an ammo dump bag. So it kind of looks like almost like your like foam body lunch box type bag, uh-huh. yeah. um, but it holds your ammo securely. And you know, that's the one thing that like, I'll usually put it in a backpack, but it's like ammo weighs so much that you definitely want something that's going to be like really sturdy. These things I saw, like they're only $29.99, which is pretty affordable. So if you guys head on over to primaryarms.com, definitely check out the bags. And as always, if you guys find a primary arms optic, don't forget to use the code AVA, that's A-V-A, and that gets you a free scope mount with every primary arms optic. One thing that you brought up is that civilians don't own guns. And I kind of find that a little odd. Like, I wonder if, you know, with bombing, I mean, basically just being right outside your backyard, it almost makes sense that civilians should be armed. Well, you have to understand, firstly, everyone in the Israeli army is a soldier, right? So after you do your first three years, you then do reserves until you're 45. So at least one month a year, every single person in Israel does a month of reserve, sometimes even more a year. And during that time, he's also armed. And sometimes in where he lives, they tell him just keep the gun if he's like in the territories or something like that. You, just, you stay with your gun the whole time, even when you're not in reserves. Mm-hmm. But you know, uh, another thing a lot of people don't know is handguns. We have almost zero handguns in the IDF. You know, everyone's talking about you guys carry with around in the chamber, don't carry. And then they start talking about all this stuff about Israel. No one has handguns in the Israeli army. There may be two units in the entire Israeli military 
that have handguns. We don't have a secondary. We don't have a backup. So uh, more people have shot themselves in the leg with handguns than they have killed terrorists with handguns in the Israeli army. So uh, there's a lot of misconceptions of the way people see Israel and the way we are and what we actually are. So That's interesting. I mean, that makes sense of such a large population of Israel is, you know, military. Yeah, everybody, you know, there's and, and, and it's like craziness, right? So let's say even the the uh, in the south of Israel, where you were not too far from from Masada, there's a Arab community, a Bedouin community. And these Bedouin guys, they do the army and they're all from the same family. So they have their own brigade that their commander can be their uncle or their cousin, you know. So, uh, you know, it's like family. You're always your father's a, a, a soldier, your grandfather's a soldier, your brother's a soldier, your sister's a soldier, and your mom was a soldier, right? So it's a totally different mindset. But we have uh, our border police are in, on, in all areas that there's friction with the, with the Arab population that is anti-Israel. So, you know, it's amazing that in our government in Israel, we have 120 seats. I don't know, 13 of them are Arab. So people say we're apartheid. <laughs> Are we are part that if there's 13 Arabs in our, in our government that want to kill us, by the way, but we're a democracy. So and we're the only democracy there in the Middle East. But uh, it's it's everywhere there's friction, you'll have border police. So it's not like um, it's a free fall on the streets. You know, there are situations that, you know, when you go into a mall in Israel, uh, a movie theater, you're going to be checked. You're going to be checked if you have a weapon on. Now, you are able to carry if you have a license. But this, you're going through a metal detector, going into a, into a mall in Israel. You know, your, your car is going to be checked when you're going into an underground parking lot. That's the way everything is in Israel. And, and you accept it as being living there. You, you understand that's the rule. So it, you just adapt. And then here in America, it's, you know, a totally different thing. You know, everything is so different here. You know, the space, you guys have grass. <laughs> There's no grass in Israel. You know, just it's all synthetic and stuff. You don't see people having a, an acre home in Israel. When I when I when I moved here to South Florida, I sold my house in Israel, and for the exact same amount of money that I sold my house in Israel, I bought a house here in South Florida. But the size of the house was 16 times the size than it is in Israel. So they have these like satellite pictures that you can see your home, and I have like a, a an acre of land, which is not a big deal, but in in Israel it is. And I would send a picture of my home. To my friends in Israel, telling them this is where I'm going to live, and they said, "Bullshit, you're not going to live there." I said, "Swear to God, that's my house." No bullshit, you're lying. That's Trump's house. I said, "No, that's that's my house. That's not Trump's house." You know, the whole concept of of land is totally. That's probably why we don't have any hunting. You know, there's just no space for that stuff. Yeah, that's true. All okay, kind. so changing it up a little bit. So then, when you got out of the military, that's when you started CAA, right? No. No, after, after the military, I, I retired in 2010 as a, a lieutenant colonel after 22 years. And I went to a company um, that we started to develop optics. I was into optics first. So I did some optics for, for in a joint venture with Beretta from Italy. I was there many, many, many times. It was for a tender in India. Um, met some great people there in Beretta, uh, especially in Steiner. Uh, um, one of my mentors is a guy named Robert Eckhart, great, great guy. And then CA represented me selling my sites in the civilian market here in America. And that was, I knew CA through the idea because, you know, we had some of their stuff, but CA was, was around uh, much before I took over. So I don't know how many years they've been around in, in Israel. I know, so I ran, I ran CA Israel for around three years and they were having many problems with CA USA, CA America, 
with the ability to sell. So the, com the company here was running at a loss for probably about six, seven years. And uh, the, the partners asked me, do I think I can, I can help? And I said, I can, I can try. I wasn't too confident. And when I first came out here about a little less than five years ago, I would tell people that I'm from CA and I would, there, sometimes I got physically kicked out of stores. No. That the reputation was so negative. They were dealing with, CA originally started dealing with accessories mm -hmm. before Magpul, by the way. I remember when Magpul was a two-man company. I had a show that I gave a symposium once for, uh, in any case, um, they were selling gun furniture, like the, the stocks, the rails, the grips. That's what CA did for many, many, many years. And CA America would take the stuff from CA Israel and sell it here in the, in the civilian market. And unfortunately, they didn't do a, a great job at that. And they didn't do very well. And it was losing money. And uh, then they developed the Roni before my time. And that didn't do well in America. It wasn't accepted here. And uh, fortunately, when I got here, I got lucky. And we made some viral content. So we did probably about 250 million views on, on Facebook, on different videos that either we did or, or friends of ours did. And somehow we started becoming a known name. And uh, around three years ago, we started developing the MCK, the micro conversion kit. And we actually make it here in Florida. We split from Israel. And this took off. And when initially a conversion kit was looked at as a crutch, or as, you know, go practice at the range with your handgun. What do you need help for? And it was a very, very strong uphill battle. Eventually, uh, it took, it went crazy, went viral. And, you know, it, you know we sold a, a tremendous, tremendous amount of these conversion kits. And I think the fact that it's made in the USA, which is our tagline, MCK made in the USA, has been a big deal. And that we went away not just from Glocks, even though we have a tremendous amount of Glocks. We went to the Zigzauer world and the Smith & Wesson world. You know, the SD9s and the Shield and the MMPs for us are, are great sellers. We went to the Taurus, uh, CZ, uh, uh, Springfield. So we went into different areas. And every one of the ones we've made has been pretty much a home run. We've been very, very, very fortunate. And we have a great people out there that that support us and and buy our products. and um, we've had a great run and we're just riding the wave as long as we can. Yeah. For listeners who aren't familiar with the micro conversion kits, can you just explain what they are? Sure. Sure. Um, almost everyone's seen them on social media. Uh, I don't think anyone's not seen them. They don't know what it is. They don't know who CA is, but the, so the, these conversion kits are basically you take your handgun. It can be, a, as we said, we, we mentioned the companies, we have about 125 different handguns can fit into our little compartment our little conversion kit. No tools are needed. You just slide your handgun in, it takes about two seconds. And now because I have more points of contact, I have four points of contact instead of just holding a handgun with my, with my hands and, and, and wrists, the accuracy is greatly improved. So now the stability when I'm firing is a totally different ball game. You can shoot probably three times your range, whatever your range is when it's in a conversion kit. Now I can add optics, I can add lasers, I got knives and bayonets, uh, bipods, you know, you can, glass breakers, you can do so many, so many, a lot of fun add-ons we put onto this. And what, what we've seen in, firstly, we stand on three legs. We have the law enforcement, home defense, and recreational shooter. And in all three of these, we have seen a great, great, great uh, growth. And 
it makes any shooter a better shooter. So you can teach your kids how to shoot with it. You can leave it by your wife when you're on business in her, in her, in her table by the bed, or you can go to the range with it and everyone wants something cool that the other guy doesn't have. And, uh, and we're just having fun with it. You know, we have it in the USA flag and we, the people, and we, we Cerakote them and we hydro dip them. And it's just been, we've been blown away, just blown away. And every major distributor in America carries our product. And it just, I think what people love about it, it's just simple and makes them better. And it's very cost effective when you're going sub $300 and people feel they're going to be spending $500 on your product. It's a good feeling buy, especially when you have it in your hands. There are still non-believers out there, right? There are still people in your audience that are against the conversion kit, but that community has lessened and shrink, shrunk over, over the years. Where do we do our best? Like in an NRA show, at a retail show, when someone can actually hold it, we molded my hand and we made the front kind of grip that we have here on the MCK. And it's a very, very unique kind of look. It's not a tactical look. It's not a sexy kind of look, but it just perfectly fits into your hand. Kind of looks like a half a potato, someone once called it. And everybody who has ever held one wants one. And uh, we did our Gen 1. A year later, we came out with a Gen 2. And in this SHOT Show, we're coming out with our Gen 3, which is going to be uh, another jump for us. So again, loving the people that, that support us and, and even those that don't. And we feel very fortunate that we're able to give jobs to people here in South, uh, South Florida. And it's just been crazy. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to take another quick break. Talk about IWI. I'm really excited to actually talk to IWI with you. Your experience with IWI goes way back. Yes, ma'am. Yep, yep. Uh, <laughs> IWI was a home away from home for me. Uh, being in charge of shooting for the Israeli military, uh, the owner, Sami Katsa, but his CEO, Uri Amit, is he's still my best friend now, even though he's retired. Uh, I don't have anyone closer in my life than him. And he ran, C- he ran IWI for 11 years. So... IWI used to be called IMI. The W was switched over, turned over. And it was a government-owned company. And I don't even know how many years, but if I had to guess, God, I don't even know. 10, 15 years, probably closer to 15 years ago, um, someone bought it and they um, it went from publicly owned to privately owned. And then it became IWI. And one of the guns that IWI made was the Tavor. So it was my job to implement the Tavor into the IDF uh, with many challenges because a bullpup is a different type of gun. And especially when you're used to the ARs, right? When you're used to a magazine being in the front or with a Galil or with an AK, your, your memory muscles are thinking that the, 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 the magazine is more forward than it is obviously in the bullpup. And it was not an easy thing. So real quick on the IWI, which was a big part of my life, I had to make a call on the IDF. It was the first time it was ever done. When we started implementing the Tavor into the Israeli army, we normally do it in Israel, either by brigade or battalion. So the entire battalion, the entire brigade gets this new optic, this new ammo, this new gun. And we train them and, and we do that. But because I was so fearful of... You know, because we're in battle every day. You don't, we don't have time. Yeah. I made a call that the Tavor will only go into the IDF through boot camp. What does that mean? 
The only soldier who will ever see a Tavor is a soldier who starts with it, meaning he would, I do not have to retrain him. I do not have to erase all the AR, M4 stuff out of his brain. I just need to implement the Tavor doctrine into his brain. Uh, even the way you do Krav Maga, the way you go, you know, you fight with a weapon is totally different with a Tavor than it is with an M4. There's just no barrel, right? So the, the whole the whole concept is different. Um, but so we only a new soldier at 18 would get a Tavor. And then slowly but surely, I would fill in the unit because we all serve for three years. So it would take three years in order to fill up the entire unit with Tavors. And then when they go to reserves, they go to reserves with their Tavor. That was the objective. Uh, and this was very difficult because you would have, let's say you have five infantry units in Israel and they all go to NCO school together. On a firing line, you had guys that had an M4 and a Tavor simultaneously shooting and they each ch check a weapon differently. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of difficulties in this, but that's how it was done. And the battalion commanders and the brigade commanders would call me, Mikey, let's train the, the old guys. Because the, the older you are in the army, out of those three years, you're considered, we say in Hebrew, pazam, you're considered uh, cooler, cooler because you're closer to getting out. So the new guys were getting, the young guys were getting the new gun, while the old guys were with the old gun, which was a very big problem with the a, a Jewish ego, Israeli yeah. ego. Yeah. So, and, but th there was no other choice. And I was vehemently against putting the Tavor into the reserves because those guys 20 years have been with a Galil with an M4. And the transition from Gilead to M4, which was also my responsibility back when I started, way before the Tavor, was much easier of uh, a transition to go from a Gilead to, to an M4 than to go, firstly, an M16 and then the M4, to go from an M4 to a Tavor, which is a totally different world than Bullpup. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying we should never, ever train the reserves on a Tavor because it, we don't have the time to train them. They give you two or three days. You can't erase 20 years. Yeah. So while I was commander of, of this uh, of the shooting of Israel, they kept they kept it the way I wanted to be. But right when I retired, <laughs> they said, "Screw that! We're going to put the divorce into reserves." But who's going to train the reserves? There's only one guy. We're calling Mikey. So after I retired as a lieutenant colonel, they called me in to teach reserves to, on the Tavor, which I was adamantly against. But I'm a soldier, so you got to salute and do your best anyway. So it was it was very ironic that I'm the guy that they called back. To teach the reserves to do the to to, to understand the Tavor when I was so against doing it when I was under you know under contract basically. Yeah, I mean, but that makes perfect sense. Like yeah. you're you know you're thinking it does make sense, so I could completely understand that. And also now that you're saying that, you know, like when let's say you train the the military before they go to Afghanistan, because now they're in close quarter combats it makes sense that bull pups would be so popular in Israel because of that type of war that they're in. Yeah. What you basically get with a bull pup is a shorter gun without losing accuracy. That's, that's everything in an eggshell. And in the Israeli military, three infantry units still have Tavor and two of them still have the M4. The entire Israeli military is not on the Tavor. It's, it's, um, I don't even think it's half, probably less than half. But um, there's some reasons for that with tanks and artillery and reserve units. And so it wasn't easy for some people to Tavor. We say Merkaskova, the, the, the center of grab the weights, I don't know how to say that in English, but the, the, the middle of the weight of the gun, it's no longer in the middle. It's mm -hmm. way in the back. It's rear heavy. Yeah. So the bullpup is, is your left hand, your weak hand means nothing when shooting a Tavor. Mm -hmm. It has no importance. 
you can physically, God forbid, cut off your arm or put it in your pocket and shoot almost the same way with a Tavor with one hand because your shoulder becomes your right hand and your right hand on the pistol grip becomes your left hand. Those are That's where you're holding all the weight between your shoulder and your right hand because all the weight's in the back. Yeah. Your left hand becomes almost in, in, irrelevant. Yeah, that's true, actually. I didn't think about that. Huh, okay. Well, if you guys want to check out uh, any IWI products, head on over to IWI.us. If you use the code GUNFUNNY15, that gets you 15% off all accessories. I so- still love the Tavor. I got to tell you, I, it, there was a lot of, I got a lot of kickback on the Tavor because I have a lot of stories that I probably shouldn't tell on how the Tavor was put into the IDF, but maybe for another day. There were people that didn't like the Tavor. You know, you have to understand people were very happy with the M4. M4 saved many, many lives in Israel. Many, many, many lives. Um, you know, I was with it for, I can't even tell you how many years. It was, you know, I love the M4. And they actually took a picture of me and, and they put me on the cover of Soldier of Fortune. I was the only Israeli Jew they ever put on the cover of Soldier of Fortune. And I had a Tavor. I was the first officer in Israel, the first soldier in Israel that had a Tavor. And I learned it in, in depth, you know, and there are many, 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 advantages to the to the Tavor, but I can totally understand people that are anti-bullpup. What, to, what IWI has done because of that, they have multiple options. So IWI is not just a Tavor company, they have the Galero, the Ace, they have different types of, of guns that they sell that are not bullpup, specifically for people that are against bullpup. Yeah. So uh, marketing-wise, at least, they have many options. And even though the Tavor, I think, was the gun of the year by the NRA when they first brought it out, when Michael built IWI USA here, it's uh, it's pretty cool. They they did they did a great job. Yeah, they absolutely did. In fact, I just got a Galil, the Ace Pistol, seven sixty by thirty nine, a few weeks ago. I haven't wow. had time to shoot it, you know, because my house, you know, <laughs> but super excited to shoot it. And it just feels really great in my hands. But I think IWI makes some excellent products. The Galil was was my first um, issued uh, firearm, so I think I was with the with the Galil probably six years, and our tank guys and our artillery guys stayed with them for even when we went to the M4s and infantry. The uh, tank tank and artillery guys stayed with the Galil because they'd go into their tank or their uh, and they would just throw the gun inside there, and the Galil was such a workhorse, you know, yeah. mud. Because the Galil basically was a copy of the AK-47, just with improvements, right? Yeah. So it works in mud. It was a it was a workhorse, but it was heavy as shit. The magazines were incredibly heavy. Forget that they carried five more rounds. It's bullshit. Thirty-five. We don't carry thirty rounds in our magazines in Israel. We're either twenty-eight or twenty-nine. We're we're always worried that the first round is going to be a stoppage, and the spring is not. You'll never see a soldier in Israel with thirty rounds in an AR magazine. But in any case, the Galil was incredibly heavy. And the major problem with it was that the rear sight was on the dust cover because they wanted to create larger space between the front sight and the rear sight because in the AK, as you know, it's in the middle of the gun, the rear sight. So that the sight distance increases accuracy. The farther they are apart, you know, to a limit, the more accurate the, the weapon's going to be. Your straight line is straighter, we'll call it. So... When that originally in 88, before the A's, but when the old Galils, even before there was an IWI, this was all IMI, this is Israeli owned, uh, the government owned, the dust cover, I think it's called in, in English, would move, it would rotate left and right. And the, and the rear sight was on this dust cover. 
So if you go to the right and go to the left, so I can't even tell you what that would do to zeroing, right? So it was just a, a frigging nightmare. We would teach move, move the dust cover to the right before you zero. So at least I have one uh, consistent place that I can now try to zero my gun. It was like insane, right? So uh, I cannot tell you how much we moved from 88 to 2010 in, in shooting because we just, we just didn't have the right equipment, you know? Yeah. We had a, a night scope called Varo. It was, uh, I don't even know what company. It was 1.7 kilo of shit. Now it says that you can shoot to 800 meters with, this, with the crap. I would put it on my M long M16 because as a sniper, we had an M14, but we couldn't put night vision on that. So we had to carry two guns. And my issue gun is a Galil. So now I got three guns, right? I got my Galil gun to, for the regular CQB stuff. I got my M14 as a sniper rifle with a night, with a day scope called a Nimrod. It was like magnified by six. And, and I had a, M a M16 long with this Varo sitting on the top of the carrying handle. And it was, uh, you know, Q3. it's probably like five pounds. And they said you can shoot from 800 meters and you can put on an RPG and shoot with an RPG with it. And it had all these crazy lines inside of the, the scope, like you're supposed to range estimate crap and stuff like that. I swear to God, you had to be Einstein to even try to figure out what all these formulas was. And I'm talking 88, 89 before we even know how to shoot in Israel. Yeah. And I would go to ambushes with it. And I swear to God, I couldn't see more than 20, 30 yards with it. I just couldn't see it. So it would probably better to take that off the gun and throw it at the terrorists from Hezbollah and hope that that scope hits him in the head, uh -huh. it would cause more damage than trying to shoot through that and try to hit him with that thing. At the end of ambushes, we would take it off of our gun and leave it in the field. So they'll use that against us. We have a better chance than, uh, than firing with that stuff. So um, a lot of crazy stories <laughs> with, with the subpar equipment we used to get back into ambushes in, in the late 80s. That's so crazy. Yeah. I got you're, some crazy you're stories. You're so fascinating to talk to. I love all these stories. Well, I think our life is just a constant, you know, being in the military specifically, it's a lot of shit, but, but there's so many awesome stories, so many great things that happen to you and so many great people you meet. And when I, when I, I actually truly miss it, you know, I'm going to say something that I, I don't say publicly. I miss doing things not for me and my family but for something bigger than me mm -hmm. serving you know i've been to fort bragg i don't know 20 times i've done three gun shoots with them with our mck and they're using our mck as a truck gun in fort bragg the serving something that's bigger than you that you can actually lose your life doing mm -hmm. there's some i don't know i don't know how to say this i don't want to be stupid some some purity in it some sort of some goodness in it. So, you know, it's very important for me that my kids will be in the military. And obviously my wife was in the military. It's very important for me that my kids see policemen and every time they see a police guy or a fireman, they, they'll go out of their way to say, thank you for your service. Mm -hmm. You know, um, they're brought up in the way to respect the people that are willing to, to give everything for our freedoms that we enjoy here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we can take nothing for granted, zero. And, and we need to, to fight for what's ours. So I, I had an honor to serve for 22 years. I had an honor to train the, the American guys. I had an honor to go to Fort Bragg and Camp Lejeune. I've been to a lot of bases here. I'm even trying to build a, a shooting mattress that I'll try to get into the US military that helps them shoot. I've been with the National Guard. I've been with the Army Reserves here. I have this knowledge in my head of, I trained 500,000 soldiers how to shoot a gun. 
So I have this unique knowledge that many others don't have. It's not better knowledge. It's not deeper knowledge. It's a unique knowledge because there's not a lot of people that wrote a shooting doctrine for a fighting army and, and did that for a while. I don't know anything else. You know, if I have to hang up something in my house, my wife has to do it. I have, prob- I have probably third grade common knowledge. You know, my, my, we say in Hebrew, my common knowledge is very weak. I'm just, I just know what I know. I know how to shoot and how to train people how to shoot. So that's the gift God gave me. You know, that's what, I don't know how to run very well. I wasn't very strong. So my, my whole, I used to say in Israel, they make you run 2000 meters and do pull-ups and push-ups for a, your uh, qualification fitness test. And I said, why not to run the whole fucking 2000 night? Let me run 400. I'll probably have a heart attack by then anyway. <laughs> I'll shoot from 1600 because the boat's faster than the asshole. Anyway, why do I have to run the whole freaking two yeah. So uh, that was my way to try to teach these uh, fitness freaks. Just give me a gun and move out of my way kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Let's talk about the, is it the Agada? Can I pronounce that? Yeah, sure, sure. The Agada. Agada. The Agada, which means legend in Hebrew, is our new PCC. Now, for us, we've always made conversion kits. So we would make conversion kits for your nine or for your 10 or your 45, whatever, but we never made a rifle. We never made the gun ourselves. We made something that you put your handgun into. So the natural metamorphosis and growth was to go to the next level. And I've always dreamed. Now, by the way, a little story about IWI. When I was going to retire from the IDF, I obviously was, uh, I was going to go work for IWI. Firstly, the CEO is my best friend. Other than that, that's all, all I know. <laughs> I, I'm not going to go be an engineer like my wife. This is, this is what I know. So they offered me a contract and I was supposed to develop the new gun where we're going to be 10 years from now. That's what I was given a contract for. And before I started working for IWI in Israel, uh, one of my generals, who was my commander in the infantry, who was in charge of the entire infantry, offered me another job at a higher paying job and more percentages. So I went there and I never ended up working for IWI, even though they back then they were my family. So I had this dream to build a gun. And I was extremely frustrated when I taught soldiers to shoot with the Galil, with the M16, long, short M16, the M4, the Tavor, the, the micro Tavor. Whatever guns I had to train these hundreds of thousands of soldiers, it frustrated me the way the guns built. I was in Beretta's museum. They had this great museum in Italy of guns from 500 years ago, right? These guns that people did, uh, one of the back-to-back walking 20 steps, turning around, shooting some dual stuff. Crazy history, crazy, amazing history. But when you look at the guns, the last 500 years, Nothing's really changed. What's the difference between this AR and this AK and this Tavor? They're all, they all, and, and with, you know, this save lives. I love guns, right? I'm not saying anything negative about guns. I'm just stating a fact as I see it. They all look like, they all look like a broomstick. It's all stock to barrel. And now when I look at a person's body and you study it, and you study the ergonomics of the shoulders and the, and the wrist and the elbows and the torso and the neck and the head and the eyes. And where is everything located in your body? You can see that every single one of us who holds a long rifle, whatever the rifle is, it's irrelevant. You will see them breaking their wrist and contorting their body to hold their rifle. 
the gun was not made for us. We are adapting ourselves to this gun, and that's the way our dad, our grandfather did, and we just continue that. And it's insane. There is no reason in the look, even when you're when you're talking. Now, obviously, we're in a podcast and nothing visual, but when you hold your hand up in like a boxing stance, right? You'll see that from your elbow, through your wrist, through your hand, and through your fingers, it's a straight line. There's one line that you can draw from your elbow all the way up when you're in a fighting stance. And if you look at your index finger in this fighting stance and you pull it up and down, you'll notice that your index finger is going up and down. It's not going back and forth. Now, in order to pull a trigger, by definition, you have to break that wrist, turn that wrist as you can do now as you're talking to me or you're hearing this. You have to turn your wrist. You have to break that wrist in order to bring your index finger to pull from front to rear. That's the only way to do it. Now try, now try to get your face onto the stock. Now you have to get your elbows into a position where your left hand can hold it. We are contorting every point of contact, the shoulder, the face, the right hand, and the left hand are all contorted to adapt ourselves to the way a gun is built. And I said, I'm going to try something. I'm going to go outside the box. There's going to be some hatred. There's going to be some purists. And I said, what the hell are you doing? We even had one guy say, they didn't, how are you going to retrain them? And they're so used to, and all that is logical. But what we're doing is we're going to your natural position. What we are trying to do with this Agadah and the way you will hold it, that you don't have to think about it. You don't have to break any wrists. You don't have to contort yourself to the gun. You're just going to hold it in the most natural position. Wherever your hands fall, that's where the pistol grip's going to be. That's where the forward grip's going to be. That's where the trigger's going to be. That's where the safety is going to be. So if you, if you put your hands up in like in a fighting motion, why do they do that? Because it's a very natural motion to do, to put your hands up. Even if you've never fought in your life, never did Krav Maga in your life, never been in a fight in your life, never. And you have to just protect yourself. Your nature is to put your hands up in front of your head with your weak hand forward and your back hand closed, closer to your body in a fist. That's the way you are. It's natural. It's, a, it's an instinct. And that's exactly where we put the grips. That's exactly where the pistol grip is. So instead of the pistol grip being below the, the, the lower and the rear of the lower receiver, it's off to the right and up. Your, your forward grip is not underneath the barrel. It's way off to the left and forward. And the trigger pull is a downward trigger pull and not a front to rear trigger pull. Um, so everything about the Agadah was built so it can fit your body, which will create speed, which would create accuracy, which would create less struggle. It'll be a more natural hold. It'll be a more comfortable hold, which will create less. When you hold a gun unnaturally, you'll see people, and I see it all the time, they shake. Their gun's shaking because they're not, they're, their muscles are being used instead of their bones being used. They're not, they're not doing it correctly. Even the way people put their head on a stock is amazing to me. How many people fold their head to the right? How many people keep the stock too low in their shoulder? I cannot tell you how many videos I've seen of people shooting. It's just wrong, just, just wrong. And you wanna wake up and, and hey guys, you know, I, we give tips all the time. We built this gun that will make it very easy to shoot. Now that makes total sense. Cause I watched that video, you know, when you were first introducing it and everything that you said made sense. And it's weird how 
the rifle ergonomics haven't changed in like 500 years. And that this is kind of just like what we accept, like, oh, okay, you know, without really thinking about, I guess, the ergonomics of our body. I don't know. It's, I would definitely be interested to shoot one to see exactly. I feel like kind of like how you were saying about the conversion kits. It's like, unless you hold one, you can't fully understand, like, you know, from a distance, it just looks like some weird thing that you put your gun in. 100%. I think the, the, there, what I love about this country is it's okay to hate. You know, it's okay not to agree, yeah. but I always say, try it first. You know, yeah. after you tried it and you didn't like it, screw it. How did the MCK go viral? The only way, the Roni didn't go viral, the Micro-Roni didn't go viral. Why did the MCK go viral? Other than the fact that it's made in America, you know, and we, we improved a lot of stuff. But the reason it went viral is because people enjoyed shooting it so much. And, and that love, you know, in, in selling in business, you'll hear two terms, a push and a pull. A push is when you go to a distributor like Sports Out and you say to them, I'll give you a spiff if you sell my product. You're pushing it on to the end user. A pull is when you, you go to the end user through viral content. He goes into his dealer and his mom's and pop's pizzeria, brick and mortars. Hey, I saw this conversion kit on, on Facebook or something. Do you have it? He says, I don't even know what you're talking about. He calls Sports Out and then Sports South calls me and that's the way we did this. So we used a pulling effect, right? We pull it off the shelf. That's exactly what can happen with the Agadah. The Agadah people will shoot in the beginning. They're going to be, everyone's going to look at them at the range. What the hell is that? No one's seen anything like that in 500 years. And then they're going to try it. And then they're going to see, oh, this is a lot easier for me to shoot. This is a lot more natural for me to shoot. This is a lot more comfortable for me to shoot. Uh, let, let, me, let me get serious. And now, and we're pricing the, the PCC at, at under $900, which is, probably on the lower spectrum of the PCCs. It takes a Glock magazine as well. We're gonna provide our own magazines, but it takes a Glock magazine as well. And the price points with the comfortability, I think we're looking, you know, we hope uh, we'll hit a home run. And to be honest, there's gonna be haters. There's gonna be people who are saying, what are you talking about? One cannot accept something that's very different than he's used to. Mm-hmm. If, even the way we check a gun, I'm gonna tell a story here. It's a, it's a very cool story for people that are gun guys. The way a weapon was checked in Israel, meaning after when you're checking it, making sure there's no round inside, that it's not loaded. And we can discuss in another time of going with a magazine and not going with a magazine and bullet in the chamber or not. It's a whole nother conversation. And there's a lot of misconceptions about what Israel does in that world as well. But the way we would check the Galil, the way we would check the M4, the M16s, was that we would pull the receiver, the cocking hand. I'm sorry about my terminology in English. It's terrible. But we would cock the gun twice. We would let it go. We would open up a safety and we would pull the trigger. Then we would have to recock it to close the safety. That's how we checked an M4 or a Galil. The safety is a little bit different than Galil, but you had to open up the safety to cock the weapon in a Galil. This was outstandingly stupid. And this is what was done for 40 years in Israel, 40. And some people in America still do similar. No one really looked at it. And I was put in charge of, of shooting in 93. And I started to see that a lot of our misfires are happening when uh, the, what do you guys call it? Dis- accidental discharge. The accidental discharge were happening when, when we were checking the gun to see if it was loaded or not. And then you study this. They would pull the cocking mechanism, open up the safety and pull the trigger. 
coincidentally, that's how you shoot a bullet. You have to cock it, open up the safety, and pull the trigger. So the exact same actions that you do to shoot a gun are used to check the gun in the Israeli army back then. What a surprise that we had so many accidental discharges because our guys are a lot less disciplined than the American people. And I can tell stories about that. And we would forget our magazine inside. And we would, every time you would go into a base, outside of a base, get on a bus, get off a bus, you would have to check your weapon. It was law in Israel. So the guy wanted to be cool in front of the guy who was doing gate duty, guard duty. He wouldn't see the idiot that the magazine is stolen the frigging gun. And he would cock it twice, open up the safety and do it. And he would do this in under a second. And by the time he realized that he forgot the frigging magazine in, the bullet was already out. I hated his system. I hated it with a passion. But at that time, I was not in charge of the safety of Israel, of the military. I was just in charge of the shooting doctrine and training and what guns were using and optics and all that. I wasn't in charge of the technical side of the gun. It's a different division in the idea. And I used to believe that what we should do is cock the gun three times. That's it. No opening up a safety, no pulling a trigger. The only time you ever open up a safety or pull a trigger is when you want to shoot the frigging gun. Never when you're checking it. This was my belief for years. I would even tell people it's my belief, but it wasn't my call. So I could not change doctrine in that area because that wasn't my responsibility at that time. And then an unfortunate incident happened in Israel and we're in the territories and we have something called normal manage statement. So it means you, you work with a magazine in, in, the, in the gun and someone cleaned their weapon. And after you clean your weapon, you also check it. Mm -hmm. So he, he put his gun magazine in without realizing it, cocked the gun, shot the round, you know, soldiers are soldiers. And it hit his, and it hit his friend in the back. Oh. Did not kill him, but it hit him in the back. And they have, when this happens, a brigadier general who's in charge of the entire infantry, same job, by the way, that I ended up working with, but not the same guy, calls me in. And I told him what I think. He says, Mikey, that's genius. If you cock three times, there's no chance of someone by accident doing an accidental mischarge and killing somebody. Mm -hmm. Maximum, he'll see two rounds flying through the air because I cocked the gun three times and the, the bullets went out. And now I say, oh, oh, I screwed up. I forgot my magazine in. I can take out my, my magazine and clear it. And we started to teach that in the infantry. And then the head of safety, who's in charge of this, heard that, got pissed off as shit. He said, what are you guys changing that docker? And I know Mikey's talks about that. I'm not, I don't agree with that. And he basically turned it back. A week later, a week later, we're in Lebanon, a unit in, from the tanks. Same exact scenario as the guys that were in the territories. Cleans his gun, puts a magazine in, cocks it. This time, accidentally mischarges, but kills his friend. Uh, now there's a dead soldier because they didn't listen to me, right? Now this is driving me nuts because my entire life is trying to save people, right? This is why I was born in this world, right? That's why I think God put me here. And I was, I was losing it, right? And then he's in trouble, this guy, because now it's up to, it goes to the end of the chief of staff, right? The chief of staff now has to talk about a soldier dying. This is studied and learned from and what happened. And he came to my base and he said, you know what? Let me see your idea again. And I showed him my, the idea of, I can even take the extractor pin out. Nothing can happen. There's no way of a, a misfire, no way of a bullet getting stuck in the chamber. Shells get stuck, but not bullets. And another, another lecture. And then they changed the system of how to 
check a gun. Now, all guns, the Vors or M4s or whatever you have, Galil's, you have to cock the gun three times and that's it. You do not open up a safety. You do not pull the trigger. We cut down the accidental discharges by 95% and decrease the people being hit accidentally by a, by accidental discharge to by 100%. We went from the number that was there that I'm embarrassed to say to zero. And, um, and that's just by thinking outside the box. So there were some purists who are so used to doing that, that they were upset at the three pulling back option, the way the IDF does now. And they couldn't, they didn't believe in it. It's the same way it will be with the Agadah. People say, no, 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 you can't do that. There's no way that these guys were all wrong for 500 years. You can't improve on that. You can't think outside. Who the hell do you think you are? You freaking Israeli American idiot, you know? And I'm not trying to say I'm better than anybody else. God forbid. Someone had to think outside the box in this world. And we said, why not us? And the future will teach us if we were right or wrong. I truly believe five years from now, every major gun company in America will have grips that are very, very similar to the grips that we're making hmm. under the patents that we did. But I, there is no question in my mind that there's going to be some serious people that are going to like this very much. Um, I'm not saying it's fit for military. I'm not saying it's fit to go to war with. We're talking PCCs here. We're talking nine millimeters. We're not talking crazy sniper shit. But you'll see that the comfortability is going to be a, a big deal. And we have to put our, you know, uh, our reputation behind this, right? It's got to do what it's got to do. We're not going to release it until it does what it's supposed to do. But uh, we're still very optimistic that pre-shot show the first 1,000 will go out. And we're going to kill ourselves for that to happen. Wow. Okay. So that's when you're expecting it to hopefully be released. Yes, ma'am. Awesome. For any listeners who want to follow uh, CAA USA, where can they find you guys on the internet? Um, CAAgearup.com. So it's G-E-A-R-U-P. So it's CAAgearup.com. Okay. Awesome. And then you guys have links to social media, YouTube, and all that good stuff. Yes. Yes, ma'am. You know, social media became a, without social media, I wouldn't be talking to you. Uh, that changed our life, you know, as of now though, to be honest, it's a lot less important. If all of our social media pages went down, to be honest right now, it's not, it wouldn't kill me. I wouldn't want it to happen, but now it's firstly, Facebook now doesn't like gun guys. YouTube, YouTube doesn't like gun guys. Instagram doesn't like gun guys. You know, I can't even tell you how many times they, I see others and ours that posts get taken down for no reason. Um, we're not in a popular social media. People don't like us. You know, the, the, the high tech guys, you know, the big tech guys, they don't, they're not big fans of us. Yeah. So um, our Facebook page is almost, you know, 400,000 followers, 450,000 followers. And it's like dead. No one even gets to see it. You know, we're always getting warnings all the time and, and we're not doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. They just, no. they just don't want our voice to be heard. Yeah. So um, that's why people like you are so important. You know, people that are, are talking to the, the Second Amendment lovers, the people that you know believe in our freedoms, believe in our constitution, believe in the right to, to protect your family. So, you know, that's why the fight needs to be fought, you know? Absolutely. I know. I totally agree. All right. So moving forward, Caldwell. One of the products that Caldwell is most probably known for is their lead sleds. They're a great tool if you're 
really wanting to confirm that a good precision zero on a rifle and remove any doubt that you might have moved at all when you're, you know, shooting that gun. They do this by having a solid frame construction that supports both ends of a rifle and it's weighted down with bags of lead to completely absorb that recoil so the gun doesn't move at all when you shoot it. Really, all you have to do is adjust it so that the crosshairs are on target, squeeze the trigger. They have several different versions of the lead set to choose from, starting at $109.99. You can check all these out at caldwellshooting.com. Remember, if it's your first order, use the code GUNFUNNY10, and that's going to get you 10% off. Politics. What is going on in the world today? It's political. Today's political segment. A couple weeks ago, I talked about a Hawaiian man who had received a notification that he had to surrender his firearms after he'd gotten into an argument with his neighbor last year. Hawaii law prohibits anyone under indictment, bound by court, or convicted of a felony, any crime of violence, or sale of illegal drugs from owning a firearm. None of those occurred, though. So Lance Choda was arrested for disorderly conduct in a nonviolent argument with his neighbor. This year, when he applied for a permit to purchase a new firearm, he was denied as his conviction for harassment and disorderly conduct was wrongfully treated by Hawaii County Police as a crime of violence. When I talked about this before, the judge in the case had granted a stay of the order to surrender his firearms until the case was settled. Last Friday, Choda won his case against Hawaii County Police. In the judge's decision, it included, quote, it is stipulated that county is permanently enjoined from denying any applicants permits to acquire a firearm during to being convicted of a crime or violence unless the conviction meets the definition of crime of violence. His convictions were for petty misdemeanors and Choda's rights are fully restored. What's even better about this case is that any county of Hawaii residents who find themselves in a similar situation will see that their rights are restored with the president set by this case. So great news for Hawaii, especially since Hawaii has some of the strictest gun laws. Manicor Arms. Actually, Mikey, you might find Manicorms really interesting. You might actually want some of their products. They make a bunch of products, but some of the most popular, what I call comfort upgrades for the IWI products. Guns like the Tabor, which you mentioned, they make the cantilever forend to give you a solid aluminum free float forend with M-lock mounting, or they have the curved butt pad for a more comfortable shoulder fit, or the gasketed port cover, which is essential if you run a Tabor suppressed. Uh, it obviously prevents, you know, getting gas in your face. You can check all of these out at manicorearms.com. Remember, if you use the code AVARocks15, you'll get 15% off. Today's Q&A. Q&A. There's no such thing as a stupid question. Just kidding. Visit gunfunny.com forward slash contact to submit yours. Actually, I didn't have any questions I just put in here because I wanted to talk about something. Is your house back together finally? And if you guys notice that my audio is a little off, you will know that, no, I'm not back in my house. <laughs> Unfortunately, even though last week I'm like, I think I only have a week left and I should, you know, next episode should be recorded back in my house in my studio. But no, it's not. I've had one issue after another. And yeah, my tile guy which actually, before you got on, 
uh, I was talking to Tom over at CAA. He said that you just recently had issues with your tile guy. Don't so, get me started. You, you you tell your story. I wanted to shoot some people, but in I this know, country, it's, it's not legal. I'm like, I am so annoyed. So I'm going to read this text message because I can't even believe the customer, like, like, oh my gosh, I can't even believe like the way this guy's talking to me. So I said, Hey Shane, ideally, when can I expect to have the tile done? I'm moving back into my house, trying to decide if I should sleep in the guest bedroom or my bedroom. Last week, you told me it would take a week and it's not close to done. So I'd like for you to give me a realistic estimate this time. Cause I'm so tired of being like pushed around where they're like, yeah, you know, it'll be a week. Oh, week, you know, a week goes by and they're like, yeah, another week. And it's just like, is this your first job? Like, can't you just give me a realistic estimate so that I can like plan my life around it? If it's going to take three weeks, tell me three weeks. Don't just like try to appease me and tell me a week. So his response is, I'm sorry, but I'm booked out until January. I didn't bid this job in the beginning, which he actually, he didn't. It was somebody else. And then they took him on, but he still agreed to it. He said, I didn't bid this job in the beginning. I'm trying to help you out. Why would I walk away from my jobs that were scheduled months in advance? I'm not even making any money on your job. I really don't think you appreciate what we're trying to do for you. My schedule changes on the daily. So if you want us to finish it, you're just going to have to hang in there. And I said, I truly appreciate it. All I'm asking for is communication. He wrote, this is the shit that happens with poor planning. Now you're trying to put it all on me like it's my fault. Yeah, I wish we were further along. Matt was sick, who's his uh, helper, his employee. Matt was sick. My truck broke down. Life happens. There's nothing I can do. I'm happy to walk away with no money from you or stay. We're doing the best we can. Meanwhile, like jokes on me because I already paid him in full. So I'm like, oh, you're going to walk away with no money? Like, okay. And I wrote, I'm sorry if my tone came off as rude. I'm not upset. I know it was poor planning and shit happens. I'm just trying to plan on my end. If you can't give me an estimate, just say that it's okay. And he didn't respond. I'm like, since when do you talk to a customer like this? Well, why'd you pay them up front? In the beginning, they did my floor tile and their work ethic was really good. And they'd show up at like 7 a.m. and, you know, work a full day. And so I just figured like, oh, okay, like they've already, they've been finishing really quickly. And all that's left is just a tile in my shower and my bathtub. So of course they're going to finish it in a week. And it was stupid. I shouldn't have paid them up front. And you have, I mean, to, you have to pay something up front, you know, 50%, something, but you yeah, always yeah. do something to the end because yeah. there's no other way. If not, you're, you don't, you have no leverage. I know. You're, you're, at the, you're at their mercy and everything in America is so hard now to get stuff. It's just it so is. hard. So you know? Normally I would just be like, cool, screw off and I'll hire somebody else. But, and this is what people don't realize is like right now, I mean, everyone's pretty much remodeling their house because a lot more people are working from home. Yeah, they're like, oh, maybe I don't like my house or maybe this could be changed or whatever. So they're spending more time at home and they want to remodel it. And then on top of that, with people not wanting to work because Biden's just handing out checks left and right. Why not? Yeah. Um, you know, they're having a hard time finding people to hire. So you're <laughs> kind of at their mercy. And I hate this. Like I've learned so much from just remodeling my house that I honestly, I never want to do it again. It's but a life it's lesson, though. We had a, a, a very big company that I can't say their name, but a very big company that we bought the tiles from, and it's seven pallets. And it says it's the same skew, but when you open up the pallets, they had different shades and different calibers, which means the sizes were different. So when they started putting the floor, they hit a wall that they can't finish the floor because the tiles that they have are different sizes. Mm -hmm. 
So you say, okay, no problem. Let them, them, them just switch it out. They don't have them. There's nothing to ship out. They can't even ship it out. So they're saying, we'll give you the money back. Hey, but guys, my war is, is done. Now what do you want me to do? Yeah. I, have to get, I have to get the contractor to take off the floor. Well, that cost me money because you're not going to do it for free. Yeah. So it, it, was a, it, was a, it was a long process, but I think they're fixing it today. I think you know, I, we put a little pressure on and I think they're, they're going to help us. But I, I was smart and I kept half my money with my guy. So he only gets paid the other half when he finishes the job. Well, I called up the last night. I called up the original contractors that, you know, hired this other guy out and they, I mean, they were like livid when I sent them screenshots of how this guy was talking to me and they said, either way, they'll do the tile. You know, I mean, I'm not going to be left in the dark, but I just cannot believe like just the amount of like losers that I've had to deal with just from, you know, the water restoration to just every little thing getting done and the work ethic, like the lack of people just, especially, so let's say you don't pay them up front. I mean, my motto would be like, okay, let's hurry up and get this done so that I get paid and I could be on to the next job and, you know, kind of hustle. But it doesn't seem to be the same thought process with a lot of these contractors. Like they're all just dragging, like I'm paying them hourly or something. It's just, it's insane. And I almost feel like I'm like uptight, like almost like a Karen, you know, like, okay, guys, come on, you know, but it's like, it's been eight weeks now. And I'm like, I just want my house finished. I just want my like life back. <laughs> I, I, I totally get it. It's terrible to live in a house when they're doing this stuff. And, and we, we ordered a new door for our home, a front yeah. door, four to five months to get it. And these lead times are insane now, right? You know, I have friends that are in the clothing business. They can't get shit from China. You know, Walmart's canceling their orders and stuff. You know, people are losing millions of dollars now. It's just very hard. And what happened with your people, you know, they have this plan, right? So they, they have so much work. It's the, especially in the field that you just mentioned, re renovating the people's homes, you know, try to, try to do, redo your pool. You know, that took me like three months. So everything takes a lot longer now. But what I've noticed is that they have this planned out. So they have already a schedule, as you said, until January. Yeah. So when something goes wrong, like what happened with you and with me, then the whole structure gets messed up and the machine now has to be, it, they don't know what to, how to deal with this. So, and sometimes you get screwed in the end is what happened to you and with me. And, yeah. But in the end, these should be our problems, right? These I should know. be our, let's, let's, let's uh, go finish the rest of our lives that, <laughs> that these were our problems. So uh, yeah. you have to put it into proportion, even though I hate it, I have to go into my house through the garage I have to go through the, the pool area. I can't even go through my house door. It's like, and I'm living like this for three weeks already. And I don't know how many more weeks I'm going to be living like this. You say to yourself, what? Where's my quality of life? Why is it, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. They screwed it up. They even said they took it off. But um, that's it. Can you still hear yeah. me? Uh, okay, yeah. yeah. But, you know, I mean, I guess in the end, it is first world problems. Yep. It's, uh, you do have to put that in perspective. But Yeah. It's just, I don't know. It's insane. I just, just take it easy and, and think positive thoughts. And, and no, they haven't found anyone who can stop the father time. So yeah. um, it, it'll get done. Just be patient. And when all else fails, I mean, there's plenty of vodka. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that is definitely a solution. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Today in Tacti Talk. Tacti Talk. Discussing popular guns and gear. Love it. Hate it. 
Find out now. So Men2 is now shipping hybrid grip modules. Some of you have probably heard of the Men2. It's the company that was, uh, they started back in 2013 when AR mags were hard to get to supply the Second Amendment supporters with mags that they needed. They've expanded from there with a bunch of other mags, and now they have a grip module for the P320. However, this isn't a normal P320 grip module. It's called the S300 hybrid grip module. It sees a normal P320 fire control unit and upper parts, but the grip module itself uses P365 mags. At first, this might sound kind of odd. I mean, figure, you know, the bottom's the size of a P365, the top is the P320. So you're like, oh, that's kind of a really small grip for a heavy top. In a way, it kind of makes sense, especially when you're concealed carrying, because, you know, it's typically the grip that sticks out. And so you're thinking, okay, well, this makes more sense. And then, you know, when you have that P320 slide with the P365 grip, it can still hold 10 to 15 round mags, depending on what magazine that you're using. But using the P320 slide, you can now use a full-size red dot instead of the micro red dot. You definitely have a lot more options to choose from. And the benefit of keeping those rear iron sights, which you wouldn't have with the P365. The only issue that I could think of, so this, you know, kind of makes sense, like, oh, okay, a smaller grip, easier to conceal. Although if you've ever worked in a gun store and somebody wants to check out a gun, the one thing that I've noticed is every man out there thinks that they have the largest hands ever. (laughs) And they typically want a thicker grip. Like if you hand them some micro, you know, compact gun, they're like, well, yeah, but you know, my hands are so big and, oh, look, my pinky hangs down. The more like initially when like, let's say the Glock, you know, 19X, when they came out, it was like, well, that's so dumb. That's not what the, you know, what the people want. Like they want a smaller grip and a longer slide and said they, you know, did the opposite. But the more that I've been around people buying guns, the more I'm like, well, maybe Glock was onto something. Because it does seem like a lot of guys, you know, bigger men, like they want a bigger grip, like something to hold on to. But I don't know. Either way, I think that there's definitely a market for it for people that are looking for something similar. Right now, grip modules are on sale right now for $59.99. You can get them at men2mags.com. I might have to check it out. I still don't have a P320 fire control unit. I don't know why I'm not. I know I posted a picture on my social media maybe like a week ago, me holding a P320, which it wasn't my gun. But I said this before on shows is I actually don't own a P320, but I know that there's a lot of parts and stuff out there. It's like the new Glock where they make tons of aftermarket parts for it. So maybe I should jump on that bandwagon, but I don't think I'm Our our second MCK that we came out with after the Glock was for the Zigzar P320. Yeah. And next month we're coming out with the Zigzar for the P365. So, um, That now now will work with this module, you know, can mix them up. That's pretty cool. Well, I do have the P365. I think I I actually, I mean, that and the Shield Plus, those are my two favorite micro compact guns. We'll get you, we'll get you an MCK for the Shield as well. Now the Shield Plus kind of screwed us. It fits in our conversion kit, but because it's uh the the magazine is a different uh dimension, it doesn't fit into our Ford, uh, into our spare magazine holder. Like the Shield Plus fits in, but not the mag- the spare magazine that we have. But the Shield the Shield has been very popular as well. Those, that's why we're coming up with the Hellcat as well, the Springfield Hellcat, just because those those concealed carry ones are 
and just a big part of who America is. Oh, I know. And it's like at this point, every manufacturer is jumping on the bandwagon, like coming out with some micro compact gun. I have the Hellcat as well. I have both wow. models. Do you? Okay. What, which one do you like better, the Hellcat or the uh, or the? Uh, or I'm I not like allowed to ask you that question. I think the yeah. <laughs> just shoots better. Honestly, it, it seems to okay. have less recoil, in my opinion. Cool. Okay. GPS bags. One thing I've noticed, like when I go to the range, I don't know about you, but I tend to take on like a ton of guns because I just, you know, I mean, that's what it is. Like when you record content, you're not just going to take one gun. You're like, cool, let's just load up the entire car, all these guns, all this ammo. And as a result, that could like lead tons and tons of bags. I mean, especially if like, let's say one gun bag only holds one gun. Well, next thing you know, your entire backseat's like stacked up with a bunch of gun bags. But GPS has definitely came out with some gun bags that they're definitely a lot more efficient in how you can carry multiple guns, ammo, accessories. So it really cuts down on how much you need to bring to the range. One of their backpacks has padded cradles for five pistols and still has room for a bunch of mags, ammo, cleaning supplies. They have a bunch of designs to choose from, including AR bags with tons of pockets. They also have a hard-sided case where you can move the mag and accessory pouches around on the Velcro to fit your rifle. Lots of awesome bags out there. They're personally one of my favorite. Check them out at, and this website's a little weird. It's gooutdoorsproducts.com. Remember, use the code GUNFUNNY20, and that is going to get you 20% off. Stupid, funny, cool, interesting, awesome, as f- Never mind. AF. Today's AF segment, Bosnian man builds monument of love for his wife. A man in Bosnia named Bojan Kusik recently finished a monument of love for his wife. When he got married, he built a house for his family and raised three children in it with his wife. When he built the house, his wife wanted their bedrooms to face the sun, so that's how he built the home. After a few years, his wife complained that she couldn't see people entering the front yard from the living room since it faced away from the road. So Kuzik remodeled the house to please her, including tearing down walls, rewiring everything. He said it was a very demanding task and took a lot from him, but he did it to please her. Six years ago, their last child, still living with them, got married, and they decided to let him live on the top floor of the house while they moved to the ground floor. This meant another complete renovation was in order, but instead of doing that, Kuzik decided that he would just build a completely new house. He built a new house that rotates. The entire house, including the doors, rotate, so if she sees someone coming that she doesn't want to talk to, she can just spin the door away from them, which is kind of interesting. And I'm like, oh, I want one of these houses now. <laughs> it's interesting because Kuzik, he never went to college for like engineering or anything, but he designed and built the house himself with electric motors and wheels from an old military transport vehicle. Pretty innovative. The whole time that I'm reading this, I'm thinking like, man, I need a man to do this for my plants. Like if we could just like have a house that rotates and it follows the sun so that my plants can get, you know, full sun every day, that would be awesome. Actually, yesterday, another thing that's like crazy with construction, yesterday I had a guy come to my house to give me a quote on making my back deck into a sunroom. And so really what happened was the joists underneath my deck are rotting. The deck is made of that tri, that trek 
whatever material. So it's not even wood, which is like total BS because they're like, yeah, if you use this material, your deck's going to last for like 40 plus years, which is BS because the joists are made out of regular wood. So, you know, now that they're rotting, obviously the deck doesn't last. And it's like, I might as well have just, I mean, I didn't have the deck made, but you know, you might as well have just put regular wood, which would have been a lot cheaper. I got quoted like $5,000 to have the joists under my deck replaced. And I figured, you know what, like they're pretty much just taking the deck apart, replacing the joists and then putting the same deck together and then paying 5,000 for like the, to have the exact same deck. So then I was like, well, maybe I'll just build a completely, you know, another deck. And then I was thinking, well, if I'm going to do that, maybe I'll have a sunroom. Growing up, my mom turned uh, our deck into a sunroom. And I always liked that area. And especially me being obsessed with plants, I thought it would be a good idea. This guy came over and he said that my deck is way too big to turn into a sunroom, that it'll cost like 50000 plus. He decided that we would do half my deck, which is like 10 by 10. And he had this software where he can show me exactly how the, the sunroom will look on my deck. And he quoted me 40000 for it which seems like just ridiculous. And it's, it's essentially the material. It's like a vinyl material and they put it together, even though he's like, Oh, it's custom, which he must think I'm an idiot just because I'm, you know, I live by myself and he's like, Oh, here's a girl I could take advantage of, but they pretty much just snap it in together. But he did say that it would take eight months. Cause I was just like, all right, like out of curiosity, you know, how long would this take? And yeah, eight months to just, pretty much put this snap on, which is essentially like Legos on top of my deck. Everything's insane. I'm still blown away about this house that turns around in a circle. Uh, my my wife gets dizzy on the Dumbo uh, rides <laughs> at Disneyland. So I'm not sure this thing would work, but that's like, that's insane. I still don't understand how we did that. So his whole house is on wheels and he can rotate the freaking house. Yeah. So, well, you mentioned, okay, you mentioned that you went to New York City I forget, but it's like one, it's, it's a hotel. I went there years ago and the top rotates. They have a restaurant and, that I've seen. Yeah. and it rotates like really slowly, but it's really yeah. cool because then you can see the skyline on like all, you know, like all over the city. And yeah, I mean, I would imagine like eventually, like I remember last time I went on a cruise, it felt like my equilibrium was off for like, I'm not even kidding, probably 10 days after I got off the ship. Like I still felt like I was like on water and I even went to the doctors about it. Like everything I did, I tried, I even put my freaking bare feet in my lawn, which I'm a germaphobe and it killed me to do, but they're like, you have to, you know, ground yourself with earth. I mean, I did everything to try to just like feel normal again. I don't think I'll be going on a cruise ship anytime soon. <laughs> I don't. I don't think any of us are. That was our one of our big holidays, and we're not doing that anymore. I'm gonna. I'm gonna hurt you though on something. You said you're putting carpets in your bedroom, right? Yeah, I know they're disgusting. Carpets are really gross. That 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 is not a germophobia thing to do. Yeah, I know. Every part of my house is hardwood floor, except yeah. for the bedrooms. But my bedroom, it's like has vaulted ceilings, and it's right above the garage, so it gets really cold in there in the winter. So it was just one of those things. But I also make sure that like anybody who comes through my house, like has their shoes off. I cannot stand when yeah. people wear their shoes inside a house. I hear you. But yeah, I know it just collects so much dirt. It's disgusting. We, we, we recently got rid of them and we put that vinyl that you were talking about instead. And my wife said, I just can't deal with the germs. And we have, we have, we have pets, we have three dogs. So it yeah. made it even worse. So you're not a pet person. You're oh, not a dog. 
I do. So I have a dog, but she's only four pounds. Okay. She doesn't create too much of a mess. Her name's Tickles. Tickles. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what type of dog? She's a toy fox terrier. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. All right. Well, now it's time to wrap up. We have one review. If you guys haven't left a review on iTunes, please do so. Today's review is short and stubby 90. Good way to start the week. Five stars. Ava and her variety of guests always deliver informative and funny perspectives on the 2A community. Sometimes that change of pace and tone is needed to ensure that we positively impact the younger generation we've been trying to get. I highly recommend everyone, whether you're a seasoned shooter or a newbie, listen to the show. Keep up the great work. And since there isn't another review, uh, we don't have to pick a winner. You're automatically the winner. So contact me and uh, actually, well, contact me. uh, Just go to gunfunny.com, click on the contact us form and send me a good address. But next week, I just got an email from Lockdown Secure. They have prize pack boxes. I think they're, so they're sending me one and then they told me to give one away. I'm going to, next week, I'm going to pick a lucky winner and you're going to win the prize box from Lockdown Secure, which I don't know what's in it yet. I haven't received mine, but I'd imagine it has some pretty cool stuff in it. So all the more reason to leave a review. If you guys would like to support the show, you should consider becoming a patron. You could do so by going to gunfunny.com, click on the support the show link. Also, Blown Deadline, he's given away a $300 gift certificate to a lucky patron every month, which they do some really awesome Cerakote jobs. Also wanted to thank the $25 patrons who are Corbin Bonafide, Iraq Veteran, 8888, Sake Holsters, Justin Paulson, Jason Anderson, Sportsman's Guide, Daniel Treadwell, Keith Calamore, and Melissa Ridings. King of the Patreon is Jon Snow. He wants me to say that Operator Tickles is the only reason Skynet hasn't taken over yet. All right, Mikey, thank you so much for joining me today. You're definitely a fascinating person to talk to. The show actually ran pretty a little over, but I just, everything that you had to say, it was like amazing. You definitely have stories. I appreciate that very much. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Can you just remind listeners once again where they can find CAA USA? Sure. It's CAAgearup.com. So we're, we're out there somewhere. Uh, I had a great time talking to you. I hope everything works out with the house and you get in faster than slower and it'll work out. And, and then a year from now, it'll just be a, a memory. Yeah, maybe I'll see you at Shotgun. We'll just laugh about it, right? We'll be like, remember when our houses were just, you know, total chaos and now we're like, Living like in brand new houses. Did you hear that Ziggler pulled out right two days ago? Oh, I know. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Crazy. Yeah. I don't know. It'll be interesting if the shot show occurs. And I also think that even if it does, I don't know if a lot of people are going to be going. I know. I know. We we have to because of the Agadah. And we also have to because we're coming out with a new optic that zeroes itself. I tried wow. one of the one of the things that we had a problem with was trying to zero people that the zeroing is becoming such a difficult thing for people, time, ammo, frustration. So we came out with some technology that the optic itself, you're going to shoot, go to the target with your phone. Your phone is going to take a picture of your, where you're hitting and where you were aiming. It will then talk to the site itself, which has a little engine. It will move the reticle. And then the next time you shoot, you hit where you're, you're hitting, where you're aiming. So you don't have to actually manually zero. So wow. the cool thing that we're coming out with, we're calling it the Zeus zero under eight seconds. Dang. Okay. This is definitely something that I need, especially because with ammo, 
like I mean ammo right now is expensive hands down right. but like right. you know especially with like some of the ammo that you're shooting you're like I mean it could be like three dollars five dollars around and you're like well this sucks yep by the time you zeroed in you're like cool you know thirty dollars I gotta go home now I'm ready. <laughs> yeah yep interesting so you're also coming out with that during shot show yeah. no I wish it'll probably be closer to March okay okay cool well thanks again for joining me today and I'll definitely, hopefully I'll meet you in person sometime soon, even if SHOT Show gets canceled, you know, at some event nearby. For sure. For sure. Eva, I appreciate very much being on. And keep up the great work and don't ever stop. Thank you. Want to send feedback? Tell us about a company or anything else. Go to gunfunny.com forward slash contact.